Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Freedom, Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Lucy Dallas, Arts Editor of the TLS, sitting in the big chair this week while Stig Abel and Thea Lenarduzzi are away. And I'm joined by Rosalind Deneen, officially known as our Minister for Fun. Um, what subjects have you been tackling recently as Minister for Fun, Ros? Done alcoholism, uh-huh. slavery... Working now on insomnia and sexual offences and the insufferable poverty of Degas dancers. All fun, jolly fun, fun. good fun. I think, we can, <laughs> I think we can agree. What would you be doing if you weren't minister for fun? Anyway, this week we're looking at American history and politics, European literature and translation, and then we zero in on where it's all happening, Gloucestershire. We'll talk to Michael Keynes about how female liberation came to and was plotted in the genteel southern spa town of Cheltenham. We'll hear about the wanderings of a wily old soldier called Odysseus, who takes an awful long time getting home, and what's happening this month to celebrate and investigate his story. And Paul Muldoon will read us his new poem. As the Cheltenham Literature Festival opens later this week, we have a couple of pieces relating to the town. One by Jeff Dyer, in which he tells us about the different versions of Cheltenham he grew up in, and one by Michael Keynes of this parish, and Cheltenham's parish, about suffragettes and suffragists, and how women, using a variety of tactics, from chartism to arson to polite civil disobedience, got the vote. Michael, welcome, and thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. Perhaps you could describe Cheltenham for us, maybe the popular conception of it now and the rather different place it was in 1839, which is when you open your piece by telling us about the Reverend Francis Close. Well, I read and greatly enjoyed Jeff Dyer's piece about Cheltenham because I grew up in a place very much uh, recognisable from his description. I really recommend it. It's a good description of how Cheltenham is an odd mixture now of this Regency elegance of places like the Pitville Pump Room and the Rotunda built by Papworth in imitation of the Pantheon in Rome. It's a kind of miniature Pantheon, which um, says it all. But there's also a lot of light industry around. There's places that tourists um, probably 
fear to tread. And uh, there's GCHQ, which is lurking somewhere on the edge of town, um, has its own little traffic lane marked GCHQ, turn left. Strangely enough, I've never been into. So there's lots of hidden sides to Cheltenham now, and it's grown enormously. Um, 1839, the town is probably around 15,000 in population. Today, it's about 110,000, I'm told. So it's grown a lot. But it doubled in size, I think, during the time of the Reverend Francis Close. I uh, wrote this piece about um, suffragism, uh, campaigning for women's rights in Cheltenham, and started with Francis Close, because it seems that uh, in 1839, he had a service interrupted by a large delegation of Chartists. Who'd have thought there were Chartists in Cheltenham? But apparently they were. And they came along to his service as a form of protest. And first of all, he got the men, and he uh, brooked no quarter, with, shall we say, with them. I, I have a bit of one of Francis Close's sermons here. See, he's talking here about a woman who doesn't live up to his, ide- his ideal of the perfect kind of uh, Christian angel in the house. See such a woman at the head of a family, a mother in the upper ranks of life. She neglects her children. Heedless of their souls, she leaves them to servants while she is spending her hours in dissipation and folly. If a ballroom be a good place for any woman, it is surely a bad one for the mother of a family. She cannot be there without neglecting her domestic and fireside duties. In the humbler class of life, such a mother of family equally neglects her children, leaving them in the lanes and streets of the city while she seeks her pleasure elsewhere, perhaps in meetings for political dissension, or perhaps in scenes of abandonment and vice. What a curse are such women to the country. The children must grow up revolutionists, for they have been taught revolution at home. It's quite inspired by yes. that. <laughs> That's how you do it. That's Francis how you teach Close, revolution. I will home. follow you anywhere. <laughs> I want my children to be revolutionists. Yes, that's that great. sounds all right, doesn't well, it? Just go yes. and seek abandonment and vice, and then yeah. you're fine. Yes, yeah. where do I sign up? I yeah. like, Even better. I feel like I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to break open the bottle. Thank you, Francis. <laughs> Basically, he's an evangelical clergyman who would rise quite quite high in the church. Uh, he was opposed to any, uh, even the slightest sniff of um, a kind of Romanism he was against. He was very against the Oxford movement. And he was very against some of the things that had actually made Cheltenham a popular place in the first place. He was against horse racing and the theatre and basically people enjoying themselves. He was themselves. against fun. He was against fun. He wouldn't go down well with Ros, who's Ros, the minister you are for the minister fun. For I'm fun. the minister he for would, fun. He's got his well, welcome be, here. I would not be keen. Well, minister for fun meet. Cheltenham's Pope, which is how Tennyson described him. But did he have, he had supporters within Cheltenham? He Absolutely. Had a, yeah. yeah, he had huge support. I mean, people would say at least half the populace are on his side, and he'd done a lot for the town in various different ways, including having a hand in the setting up of many educational establishments. So he's very important to the town's um, history, but obviously he does not like the Chartists very much, and especially not women as Chartists. Especially not when it's got women with them. So the women's movement, such as it was at that point, was kind of tied to the Chartists, is that right? And that was all about backing up the men and kind of helping them to get what they wanted, rather at that stage than independence for its own sake. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a good way of, of putting it. I mean, yeah, you say um, women's movement, such as it was, it's hard to talk about a kind of 1830s feminist wave. There mm, isn't really no. one. The th- interesting thing, I think, about the Chartists um, is, well, first of all, obviously, it's a working class movement. And so we associate it more with other places, not this kind of soft southern place that, you know, I remember quite well as being quite soft and quite southern and very pleasant. But uh, you don't think the Chartists have much to do with that. But 
when they drew up the People's Charter in 1838, in the draft version, there was something about uh, extending suffrage to women. And then, really, horrifically, they thought that they had better leave that out because it was maybe too radical an idea and it might endanger any chance of working-class men getting suffrage. Oh, I see. So don't don't frighten the horses too exactly. much. Exactly. Let's to, not go let's too not far go mad, now. Whoa, don't we? go crazy, shall but we say. But the French did that, didn't they? In the French Revolution, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, that's universal, that's for everyone, isn't it? That's for men and women. And I think that's precisely the kind of radicalism that they're af- yes. afraid of. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's exactly <laughs> what they didn't to want say. to do. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Fair enough. But do you think that the Chartist women were maybe laying the groundwork for the different tactics and successes of the later women's groups that you talk about. Um, I think there is a case to be made for that too, you know, that there's a kind of prehistory to the better known stories of suffragists and suffragettes in the early 20th century. Apparently there were 3,000 female chartists in Birmingham and there's definitely a branch in Cheltenham. There's something I I quoted in the piece which I'll I'll just read from um, a newspaper, a chartist newspaper called the Western Vindicator in which apparently the chartists of Cheltenham, the female chartists of Cheltenham wrote, tyranny lazy its iron hand on the best and bravest. The bludgeon and the cutlass are the instruments in use. The bullet and the bayonet may yet be resorted to, to attempt the quieting of an oppressed and impoverished people. So it doesn't sound like it really reflects the situation, shall we say, on the ground in Mm. Regency Cheltenham, but it is obviously something that they feel very strongly about. Um, The Western Vindicator, I think, is the best newspaper title I've ever heard. It's going to be my online I'd like to work for the Western Vindicator. And so later on, you talk about the women's movement, as I say, that that, that turned into suffragists and, and suffragettes later mm-hmm. on. Can you tell us about um, what happened, the um, events of December 1913, and what, oh, what yeah. went on then? Well, I mean, to leap on, obviously, some way. I mean, there's a, there's a great debate, uh, you know, let's call it that. There's a great debate going on throughout the 19th century. Lots of people campaigning for suffrage in various um, different ways, including people uh, in Cheltenham. But of course, everything's changed by the time you get to the early um, 20th century. You have the rise of the Women's uh, Social and Political Union in uh, 1903, those dastardly Pankhursts campaigning. Uh, too, Too extreme for some people. So there are lots of breakaway groups, of course. But the key creed, I think, for what happens in Cheltenham in December 1913 is this um, WSPU slogan, Deeds deeds Not Words, the idea that the government needs to be shown that this is how much people care about this. They're prepared to become criminals to, you know, to make make their case. Mm. And what apparently happened is that a workman cycled by an uninhabited house and saw there were flames coming out of it and by the time the fire brigade and the police got there the place was was not completely gutted but it was badly damaged enough to be pulled down so in itself that's not terribly extreme and it's quite it's 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 unique i think for cheltenham and, and the suffrage um movement but it's a nice little um claim to fame in that two women were arrested soon after and they made it pretty clear um what had been going on they hadn't tried to hide what they were doing that would obviously be entirely pointless sure. from their point of view so there was uh, suffrage literature found in the grounds <laughs> of the house and when they were arrested there was a bit of a smell of paraffin around so it's fairly exactly exactly and when they were arrested very strange thing they were accused of actually trying to kill um the colonel i mean it would be a colonel wouldn't it mm-hmm. in Cheltenham accused of trying to kill the man he obviously didn't live there so it was a ridiculous claim and um they wouldn't deal with the court because they said it was a men's court and women's weren't represented there they wouldn't give their names so they were just dubbed red and black 
and um, eventually they were sent to Worcester jail. There's a bit of a complicated scenario and they were meant to return, but they went on hunger strike. And one of those women is the fantastic Lillian Lenton, who's definitely worth looking up. Um, you can hear her, I think, talking on maybe a BBC website um, in old age about what she did. Her aim was to burn down two properties a week when she was an arsonist and campaigner for the uh, WSPU. She got the French Red uh, Cross when she served with the hospital unit during the First World War. She's a really extraordinary woman and she, she had to disguise herself to elude the police. She disguised herself as an old woman as an, and as an errand boy. So it's nice and there's a great photo of her coming down the steps in Cheltenham from the court. So it's nice to think there's a little bit of association there with definitely one of the really significant figures of the, of the more you know violent extreme end of the movement. Mm, because most of them were not setting fire to two properties a week, were they? This wasn't typical of the of the pro, of all of the protests of the time, was it? Exactly. I think it is a point where you can contrast Cheltenham in in later years to that Chartist moment, you know, from many decades before, because. It, there's more of a kind of, I suppose, middle class and working class debate going on that's rather harmonious. There's all kind of members of different political parties coming together to fight this. The local Tory MP, a chap called James Ag Gardner, is very much on side. Apparently in 39 years in the Commons, he only gave two speeches. And one of those, because apparently he wasn't a very good speaker, but one of those was apparently about, about suffrage. I think if I read Hansard right, he gave a fantastic speech about it I mean mm. any standards so um, there's definitely that going on so there's more a sense of, of of sort of gentle or moderate campaigning there could still be trouble there was a woman who was um, arrested I think for placarding pillar boxes um, which is fairly mild but I think she was sentenced to a fortnight in, in prison which is pretty extraordinary mm. and at the same time there was organised anti-suffrage campaigning uh, going on in Gloucestershire so there's definitely a battle on it's not exactly arson every week and the whole town burning down mm. but something is at stake it really matters you get things like the uh, census campaign of 1911 which is a nationwide movement but definitely worked in Cheltenham where you spoil your census paper mm. the idea is you know no vote no information mm. again you can find great uh, facsimiles of forms online where women say look if I'm clever enough to fill in a form can I have a vote please mm. and in fact the whole thing was ridiculously contradictory because by then lots of women in the area had held positions in, in local government. This hopeless idea, you can't give women the vote by then, so it's sort of an untenable position that the Commons had got themselves into. And that's a good, polite form of civil disobedience. You're not ruining anything, you're not wrecking anything, but you are saying, I'm not going to take part in this game until you listen to us. Exactly. To, there to there are extent. potentially, there are penalties. Um, but uh, yes, it's a rather kind of uh, gentle, clever way, I think, to show mm. that you don't, you don't agree with the situation. Can you tell us a bit about the Ladies' College? Well, uh, this is one of the extraordinary things, I think, that was going on in the 19th century in Cheltenham that I think slightly, oh man, it sort of belies the image of a place where nothing happens. You know, it's a kind of intellectual backwater or something, because it all seems very genteel now in retrospect. And the Cheltenham Ladies College is quite a famous sort of, uh, you know, institution, public school. But the idea in the 1850s that you could educate girls to the same standard as men uh, was still fairly radical. There were parents of students at the ladies' college who didn't want their daughters being taught maths and science. And maths, I think, uh, became a subject at the school officially in 1868. So it's pretty early. And this is to bear in mind that the headmistress, Dorothea Beale, who, who was the headmistress, I think, for, for decades, and um, 
she was at the same time campaigning for suffrage and she was part of a, a key group, I think called the Kensington Society, who um, ended up drafting a petition to Parliament for, for basically for full, full suffrage. I mean, it didn't work. It was defeated. But she's a fairly radical thinker mm. and she remained you know, interested in suffrage throughout her life while also educating um, girls herself. She's a very good teacher herself, but also um, trying to change teacher training. So she realised that one problem why girls weren't being educated properly was there's no good teachers. And so the first uh, teacher training college in the country was built in Cheltenham. Oh, right. there you go. And also, wasn't there, didn't you say there was, um, I don't know if she was an alumna of, of uh, Cheltenham ladies who got in trouble for uh, in her marriage vows for not promising to obey? Yes, she, she very, was I a mean, uh, ladies early. college girl. Oh. Yes, uh, she got in big trouble for it, I think. Um, her name was Una Dugdale. And she wouldn't uh, obey. There was a scandal about it. And then she wrote a little book about it, which I'd love to get hold of. Um, Love and Honour, but not Obey, it's called. <laughs> which, you know, is, I don't know if it's... It probably still is a live debate now. I'm sure that's still used in some places. Well, now's a good time to be talking about this. You know, let's, let's elect um, a very dodgy male to the US um, Supreme Court, I think. We, should, we might as well return to these basically key issues. It does seem to be unfortunately a bit of a live issue doesn't it? So do you think that the Cheltenham stereotype then and now is fair or unfair? I think there's something in it. I'm kind of fond of the stereotype in a way of the caricature. There's lots of amusing asides, little spots at Cheltenham in literature here and there which I rather enjoy but there's obviously some truth in it there's no smoke without the proverbial fire and for example the town has never had a Labour MP Good God, no, but it's never had a women MP either. So there's still a long way to go. But I also think, on the other hand, there's a lot more to the place and I find its, its history fairly, fairly fascinating, both in itself and as a reflection of broader things going on around the country. Brilliant. Well, um, if you do go to the Cheltenham Festival this week, I think we, are, we have a presence there. I'm not sure what our presence is. That is sounds Michael? very ghostly. No, I don't think it's, it's Michael. Michael is it? <laughs> That's good news. I should, I should also say that um, the author of uh, the book on uh, Cheltenham and suffrage, Sue Jones, is, I think, speaking on the first day of the festival. Sue Jones, who's the author of, I think, Votes for Women, Cheltenham and the Cotswolds. It's very good. Well worth a look. OK, brilliant. Well, get along there if you can. And thank you very much, Michael, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On October 21st, the TLS and the South Bank Centre are hosting an Odyssey extravaganza. First, there'll be a panel discussion led by our own Mary Beard, followed by a live reading. And here to talk about it all with us is Ted Hodgkinson, Head of Literature and Spoken Word at the South Bank Centre. Ted, many thanks for coming to talk to us. My pleasure. Um, What was the impetus behind these Odyssey events? Well, it actually began um, with a conversation with Thea Lenarduzzi, who also works at the TLS. And um, we've been talking about the live readings that Southbank Centre has done over the last few years. And I mentioned that we've done Moby Dick. And last year we did Primo Levi's If This Is A Man, which the TLS was very much involved in as well. And um, we both hit upon this, the, wouldn't it be wonderful to do the Odyssey at some point? And um, Thea was really keen on that idea. Then what happened is about a few months after that, I became aware of Emily Wilson's new translation. And that was kind of the touch paper that made it happen, really. It just seemed to me such a direct and contemporary translation of the Odyssey and seemed like it would make a great um, script uh, for a live reading. Um, the Odyssey, of course, is a timeless epic about belonging, um, but it's also um, reminds us of the multi-art sort of roots of literature. You know, it's about performance in many different ways. And that's something that South Bank Centre likes to celebrate. And so we thought, actually, all of these things came together at just the right moment. We thought, this is the perfect translation of of a poem which continues to speak across the ages to these um, quite urgent questions about what it means to belong to a family, mm-hmm. what it means to belong to a country, what it means to belong to a gender. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all questions that the Odyssey explores and, and, and offers a sort of psychological narrative for um, without necessarily resolving. Mm. And is it, am I right in thinking that when people experience the Odyssey, for certainly for a long time, they weren't reading it, they were hearing it, mm. weren't they? The exact dates um, about its origins are a subject of um, great academic <laughs> yes, debate. Many, 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 many books. <laughs> the, um, uh, Emily Wilson, in her introduction, gives the um, estimates at a late 8th century um, but there are there are lots of conflicting um, views on that but yes it was an oral poem that was performed you know we think in various different contexts in, in ancient Greece and its origins are multiple um, mm. and it, it sort of draws on it has this interesting um, combination of vernacular and very highly literary sort of diction which I think Emily Wilson also captures in her translation and how much of it are you going to do so we're not going to do the whole thing we're not going to go full epic Um, how long would that take to do the whole thing well um (laughs) that is a good question we did in the past we did the entirety of moby dick which took us 27 hours Mm. Uh, so that that gives you a sense of and did um, people come and sit for the whole 27 we had quite a few melville heads who came for quite a lot of that with their with their um pen torches at the back um but though this time what we wanted to do was we want this also to be an experience that if you haven't read the Odyssey, if you don't know anything about it, you don't know about the different translations, it's hopefully an entry point and an invitation to people to come on an amazing adventure. Because that's the other thing the Odyssey is. It's it's this great adventure story. 
so we wanted to give that sense of excitement and thrill and we also wanted to make it short enough so that if you weren't necessarily a classicist or someone that is uh you know a died in the wool Homeric yeah. expert, um, you can still come along. So it's two hours long okay. with an interval. Okay. So has someone edited it, edited down Emily Wilson's? Yes. Who, who, who Claire Ulfrey, okay. um, critic and editor, who's been abridged many things for the South Bank Centre. The last thing that she abridged was the Golden Notebook, um, which was a feat. Yeah, I um, <laughs> But this one, yeah, it's it's two hours and it, it lends itself, as you would expect, as we've just been saying, it lends itself really well to live performance because mm. it's that's its origin. And can you tell us who'll be on the panel as well, the discussion panel? Mm. Sure. So we, inspired by the live reading, we are doing a number of different events in a, in a strand themed around the Odyssey. Um, as you mentioned, the introduction um, is chaired by Mary Beard. Our own um, Mary Beard. Your own yeah. Mary Beard. Um, Dame Mary Beard. Yes, sorry, Dame Mary Beard. Apologies, Dame Mary Beard. Um, she uh, she's chairing that conversation with Professor Simon Goldhill, um, who uh, is a classicist and um, expert on the Odyssey, um, alongside Daniel Mendelssohn, um, an American critic who's um, written. He's an academic himself and also also written memoir about the Odyssey and about tracing the Odyssey into his family history. Um, Karen McCarthy Wolf, who's a poet who has. Um, interpreted the Odyssey uh, in her poetic work, and Madeline Miller, who is one of um, one of a number of novelists um, who have interpreted mythic works in the, over the last few years, and um, she'll be on that panel as well. Um, Madeline's also on a panel with Charlene Teo, talking about women rewriting the Odyssey, because there did seem to be this interesting moment taking place where, particularly, women writers seem to be um, reimagining. Um, mythic stories and perhaps drawing our attention to aspects of those stories that had previously been overlooked. Mm, we talked to her as well. Um, she was on the podcast mm. uh, earlier this year talking about the that kind of aspect. She, she kind of said, hang on a minute, where, where's the women? Mm. <laughs> what, what do the women think and did it that way? Well, they're there, it's wonderful. But, yeah, they're there, but they're always wailing and grieving. And that's about it. All being all being a goddess. But where are, where are the... But they're not. Yeah, yeah. You, don't, you don't hear what they're saying. And the main reason we're doing the live reading is because it is such a lively and contemporary translation. It's the iambic pentameter makes it feel very conversational and direct. Um, I think it's also, it is worth noting that of the 60-odd translations that have ever been made of the Odyssey. This is the first by a female translator. Um, the first in English, is it? In English, yeah, yeah mm. in English. And I think that it's not necessarily that, uh, that Emily Wilson is approaching this in a sort of ideological way, but I think that she is approaching it with a fresh take on certain words that have been viewed through the lens of, of centuries of, of male translators. The very first line, tell me of a complicated man, that epithet for Odysseus is, has been many different things over the 60 translations and complicated I think introduces a note of slight caution um, about his character um, and maybe feels particularly relevant at present um, I, and also I mean you mentioned about the wailing um, it's interesting that she introduces this note of ambivalence in Penelope um, which isn't necessarily something that is as prominent in other translations you know she has this dream uh, in which she uh, imagines eagles attacking sheep and it's a sort of premonition about Odysseus returning and this upsets her and it's something that isn't really drawn out in a lot of the other translations and yet it seems quite integral to her feelings about Odysseus returning that it's not just 
that she's wailing and missing him. But there's something a little bit more intricate going on in their marriage. It's a fascinating translation. Mm. There's an awful lot of richness and depth to it. And as you say, there's a lot of new elements to it, new interpretations. So we have some tickets to give away to this brilliant event. So do go to our website. Details will be up there next week. And we'll be talking about forthcoming related pieces on next week's podcast. But for now, many thanks for joining us, Ted Hodgkinson. There is a lot of noise and alarm and anxiety around American politics at the moment, to put it mildly. Our lead piece this week posits that some sort of civil conflict is not inconceivable. So it is with delight and relief that we bring you a new poem by Paul Muldoon called With Joseph Brandt in Kanajahari. This lovely, witty poem offers, among other things, perspective and even, perhaps, hope. Paul is with us on the phone today. Many thanks for joining us, Paul. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh, to have the opportunity to read this poem. Um, And I was wondering, just before you do, if you could um, please situate it for us and tell us who is Joseph Brandt and where is Kanajahari? Well, Kanajahari is a small town in the Mohawk Valley uh, in the uh, northern part of New York State. And I actually spend quite a bit of time up there. I have a house up there, and I spend as much time there as possible. It's an area that was um, part of the uh, territory, I think one would have to call it, that uh, over which uh, Joseph Brandt had something close to dominion. He was the great Mohawk leader, uh, 18th century into the, uh, leader, into the early 19th century. And uh, he uh, was a character, actually, in a poem I published in 1990 called Maddock, A Mystery. And he continues to be uh, one of the great uh, representatives of the uh, Native American uh, people and a spokesperson for their plight. So this is with Joseph Brandt in Kanajahari. And I, I dedicate it to... Richard Wilbur, uh, who died recently and with whom um, so much disappeared, including um, the capacity for writing interesting poems with a conventional or traditional formal aspect, uh, which is what's been attempted here, with Joseph Brandt and Kanajahari. I stood with Brandt in Kanajahari where the Mohawk River finds its way through that narrow pass and into the pot that washes itself. We'd already scrubbed our tin plates with sand and were now enjoying an infusion based on choke cherries, red willow and sweet grass. The river, he gestured, has it within it to slough off the detritus of the age, Boatloads of beaver pelts, bales of barley straw and salt hay amassed by palatine hay hoarders, truck beds, sandalwood, pig lead, corn bottled and canned, home truths, veritable stockpiles of oil and natural gas to which we once imagined ourselves inheritors, French hens, turtle doves, Submarine-launched tomahawks, relics of isle decency such as the demitasse from which I drank coffee 
when I found myself in the halfpenny place with George III. Grandees who grandstand, dictats spouting demagogues, big mouth Billy Bass mouthing, take me to the river, cargoes of ebony and dry persimmons, Eliza Pinkney's indigo dress, Indian killers who believe in the idea of an underclass that threatens our egalitarian principles, white supremacists sporting swastika armbands, dead batteries, old tires, fridges, styrofoam beer coolers, kudos seekers, kiss-ass Republican senators, all swilling about in that cauldron just as back when I was in my prime and dined here almost exclusively on bare fat flavoured with sassafras. The river still comes in at a rampage, still goes out as a runnel. It persuades me that our native land may seem to be filled to the brim, may seem indeed to have reached an almost total impasse, yet retain the capacity for its own renewal. That was Paul Muldoon with his wonderful new poem with Joseph Brandt in Kanajahari. And that's it for this week. Many thanks to Paul Muldoon, Michael Keynes and Ted Hodgkinson. If you don't already subscribe to the TLS or indeed to this podcast, why not do both? In this week's issue, as well as the pieces we've discussed today, you'll find our own Stig Abel on the starry new production of Antony and Cleopatra at the National Theatre, a review of Sarah Perry's new novel, which is out this week, and Nietzsche, Up a Mountain. Stig and Thea will be back next week, along with Mary Beard, to talk in more detail about the Odyssey. Till then, from Roz and from me, goodbye. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.